Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, and this is going to be a flipping sermon, so if you brought your Bibles, keep them open in your lap because we're going to be looking around at a few different things. But in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 3 and, uh, and read verses 3 through 6. And we're kind of picking up in the middle of a sentence when we pick up in verse 3, but that's what it is, and that's what we're going to do. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, we thank you that you are all. And we ask this morning that you would make yourself manifest. We pray, Father, that your spirit would go forth as your word is preached. We didn't come here this morning, Father, to hear a man. We came to hear from you, and we believe what the Bible says, that when the word is preached on the day which you have set aside to the people whom you have called in the place which bears your name, that your spirit enters into that process and your living word goes out and ministers to our hearts in mysterious ways. And a word that is spoken to one and cuts them to the heart also speaks to another in a different way and builds them up. And by your word, we are established. And by your word, we are corrected. So we look to you this morning, Lord, and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know we, uh, we just read Ephesians chapter 4, but I'm going I'm to take you back a little bit. In Acts chapter 7 and in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we are introduced to a quote, young man, that's what it says in Acts 7.58, named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul is a very educated Jewish man who was from an area that today is in southwest Turkey. But when we first meet him on the pages of Scripture, he is living in Jerusalem. He's at college. He's at graduate school. Uh, he's been studying at the feet of a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel. And when we first meet him, he is standing guard over the jackets of a group of men who are conducting a judicially approved murder. They are killing a man named Stephen. And Stephen is a Christian. And Saul hates Christians for one reason or another. Saul hates Christians with a white-hot, lava-like hatred. It's a murderous hatred. He wants to hurt these people. He wants to kill these people. And the day that Stephen dies is also the day that the religious and political leadership in Jerusalem finally decide they've had enough of these people of the way, these followers of Jesus, and they rise up and they begin an active and severe and intense persecution of the Christians in the area. And Saul takes a very active leadership role in that persecution. He goes, says the scripture, he goes house to house, 
dragging off men and women to prison. And so the Christians are scattered away from Jerusalem and they they flee the persecution. Some go to Samaria. Some go to places like Tripoli or Alexandria or back home to Rome. You have to remember that, that when the day of Pentecost came and all of those people were converted to saving faith in Jesus Christ by that miraculous expression of the gospel in different tongues. There were people from all over the world who came to Jerusalem to pray and to worship in the temple. And when that happened, and many of them became believers, they stayed there for a while. But when the persecution arose, they're like, well, I guess we're going to go back home now. And so they split, they fled. And that is, for instance, how we have a church in Rome that Paul never, never planted or spoke to. And you get the, the book of Romans, that's his letter introducing himself and maybe correcting some lies that people have told him because he's gotten a bad reputation because that's what the devil is trying to do to God's faithful servants is give them bad reputations and tell them, tell lies about them. So, so these Christians are scattered away from Jerusalem. They flee. They go to Tripoli. They go to Alexandria, Egypt. They go to Rome. Some of them go to Damascus, which is a city that still exists today in Syria. And they go to Damascus to hide out among the large Jewish population there. And Saul hears about it. And he goes to the high priest and he gets what are in effect arrest warrants And these warrants somehow in that judicial system of the day give him the right to arrest Christians in Damascus through the agency of the synagogues there and to bring them back to Jerusalem where they can be imprisoned and hopefully executed. And after getting these warrants, Saul departs with a group of helpers or enforcers for Damascus, which is a journey of about 125 miles. And when he's almost to Damascus, it says he's approaching the city. A bright light from heaven surrounds him. He is knocked to the ground. He is struck blind. And a voice thunders from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in terror, Saul says, who are you, Lord? He he has no clue. And the voice comes back and thunders again and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In that moment, Saul's life has changed forever, and Saul becomes Paul, the Apostle Paul. And the name Paulus in Latin means little or small. He thought he was a big shot, so God gave him a new name to prove to him that he was a little shot. And Saul becomes Paul. Most of us are familiar with that story. Perhaps we're too familiar with that story. And the reason I say that is because it's easy not to notice something that's very important there. But I want you to notice something. Saul is persecuting Christians. And Jesus says, Saul, you are persecuting me. Now, this is not a metaphor. 
Today we use this metaphor a lot. We, we talk a lot about group unity and group solidarity and coordinated collective action. And we see this sort of thing in our society and various movements. The, the gay and trans rights movements is marked by a great deal of solidarity. A few years ago before it fell apart, QAnon was marked by a great deal of solidarity. And they even had a little saying, where we go one, we go all. And, and these, these slogans are, are catchy, but the oneness of those groups is really just shallow, and it's really based around slogans. But basically what they're saying is, if something happens to a small number of our group, other members of the group will come to their defense. It's sort of like um, the t-shirt that I got as a joke for my brother. The joke in my, in my mom's side of the family is that we are upper middle class white trash, right? And uh, we embrace that. And that, that actually comes from my uncle who did quite well for himself. My uncle retired as the executive vice president of Exxon Coal and Mineral, and he, he married well. My Aunt Mary was, a, was the daughter of a well-to-do Jewish family in San Francisco, and her father was the chairman of the Golden Gate Bridge Commission, among other things. He was in banking and Lord knows what else. And, and uh, my uncle was at a party one time in San Francisco with all the hoi polloi of the West Coast. And, Someone said, Mr. Tillman, what sort of a family do you come from? And my uncle Ed, you had to know him. He just said, well, we're from upper middle class white trash. And uh, so that's been the joke in my family. So, so uh, one, one time at the Sturgis rally, I saw a t-shirt that I had to have for my brother. And, and it, it said, if you mess with me, you mess with the whole trailer park, right? And, and, and it, that's kind of what we think of as, as solidarity. But that's not really what Jesus is saying here at all. He's not saying, I stick up for my own people, though it's true that he does. He's saying something different than that. The whole of the New Testament teaches that when a man or a woman or a child is born again and steps into the kingdom of God by placing their confidence in Jesus for all of the issues of life and death and what comes after death, when they're truly born again, that there is a living union formed between Christ and that person. In one place in Scripture, Jesus talks about that union. He talks about that relationship, and he uses the metaphor of a grapevine trunk and the branches of the grapevine. And he says, when you keep plugged into me, when you abide in me, then you're going to bear abundant fruit because you are vitally connected to me through the grapevine. And in this picture that Jesus gives us, the sap that, that brings life and fruitfulness to the branch is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells both Christ and you and I. And the Holy Spirit brings the life of Christ to each of us as the, the sap brings life to the branch from the root of the grapevine. In Galatians uh, 4, the Apostle Paul gives us a list of the kind of fruit that we will bear, the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And, and what Jesus is saying is that if you remain, if you abide, if you stay plugged into me, then you will bear 
that kind of fruit in your life. And there are many other passages where this vital union is explained or it's illustrated in various ways, but the important thing to realize is that each of us who are born again are deeply connected to Christ in such a way that what is true of Christ that can be communicated to us as creatures is that, that we have what he has. Now, we're not going to be omnipotent and omniscient and all that, but whatever he can communicate to us as creatures, whatever that is, we have because of the vital connection and the, the Holy Spirit who indwells both of us. So when Jesus speaks to Saul, who just became the Apostle Paul on that Damascus road, and he said, why do you persecute me? What he's saying is that Jesus and his people are so intricately bound together in life-giving union that when Saul was imprisoning and persecuting Christians, he was attacking Jesus himself. And Jesus talks about this kind of mechanism in another place too. He says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. We see that in Matthew 25. Well, this was the first of many lessons about Jesus that Paul learned. And 25 years later, approximately, give or take, Paul writes a letter that we're studying to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, and he builds on this very first lesson about Jesus that he learned. You see, the, the life-giving, fruit-enabling Holy Spirit who indwells Christ and indwells me and brings the life of Christ to me as long as I abide in Him doesn't just flow back and forth between <clears throat> me and Christ because I'm not the only branch on the vine. If you're engrafted into Christ, then what flows through me also flows through you and the sap that flows and circulates from the trunk circulates to all the branches, all the branches, all the branches in this room, all the branches in Youngstown, all the branches in Africa, all the branches in China, all the branches everywhere throughout all time. We are bound together by that, shall I say, the circulating sap from the main trunk of the vine, Jesus Christ. So what that means is whatever happens to you, whether it's for good or for ill, also affects me and vice versa. That's why Paul, using a, a different metaphor, the metaphor of a body, writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part suffers, all suffer together. And if one part is honored, all rejoice together. Now, if you're truly in Christ, then that's true of you. You are united to me, and I am united to you, not because we like the same things or attend worship in the same building or anything else, but because Jesus Christ has plugged us both into him and is circulating power and wonderful, other wonderful things through us, through the Holy Spirit. Because we're both united to Christ. That means we're united to each other. And that's true whether you're aware of it or not. It's true whether you like it or not. It's true whether you believe it or not. 
Which is why Paul doesn't say in Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to create the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. No, no, he says make every effort to maintain. The word means to watch over or to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, I'm going to say something today that I will say again when we get to Ephesians chapter 6. In grammar, when we talk about verbs, we discover that verbs have something called the mood. And when a verb is in the indicative mood, that verb is talking about the facts as they are. The indicative mood is what is. When a verb is in the imperative mood, that means that somebody in authority is not happy about what is, and that person in authority is telling someone else to do something about what is, to change what is into what ought to be. In other words, he's giving an order. The imperative mood is somebody giving an order saying, this is what ought to be, now get about doing it. And we keep reading the indicatives of the Bible as though they are imperatives. What I mean is this. The Bible doesn't say that we Christians ought to be united. The Bible says that we who are in Christ are united. And we can either reflect that truth in our lives, or we can tell lies to the world, the watching world, about who Jesus is and about what he's doing in us and through us. Because then we're acting like Jesus is wrong. Jesus is saying, you are united. You're saying, I don't like her at all. I'm not going to be united to her. I'm going to be a a complete pain in the tuchus, and I think she's a complete pain in the tuchus, and I will never, ever, ever speak a kind word to her or about her. And Jesus says, well, you're still united to her. Now you're just telling lies about that to the watching world. You're telling lies about me. You're telling lies about what I've done and what I'm doing and what my future is for both of you. And that's a bad thing to do. Jesus doesn't like that. And Jesus says to us all in this passage, you are all one. You are all bound together forever. Now you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. And these are your relatives. Like it or not. And when we behave in ways that attack that unity, when we do things that Paul warns against in other letters, like backbiting or lying or abandoning your post and commitments or gossiping and slandering or competing with one another and engaging in enmity and anger and dissensions and divisions and, and envy, when we do that kind of stuff to each other, what we are saying is Jesus is lying I am not one with that person. I am not one with these people. And by the way, if you're in a Christian marriage, it, it's doubly so, isn't it? Because that person is not only the person that you have bound yourself to in a, in a relationship that Christ defines, but they're also your brother or sister in Christ eternally. And so what Paul says here is, I want you to make every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit. And he says it in a very emphatic way in the Greek. Basically, he's saying, bend over backwards. Make it one of your highest priorities. 
Put it up there with things like eating and sleeping and breathing. You don't let anything interfere with your breathing for very long, do you? No, you do not. And rightfully so, because it's really, really, really important that you continue to breathe while you can. And what Paul is saying is, treat the manifestation and the preservation of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace like you treat breathing. It's critical. You don't want to let anything interfere with it for very long. And then Paul gives the reason why we're supposed to do that. And he gives us this string of verbs that are in the indicative mood once again. Paul is saying, these are the facts. This is why you are to do what I'm telling you to do because of these facts. And so he gives this string of verbs and he gives seven things. And and why should you bend every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Because of what is, not because of what ought to be. Because there is one body. There is one Spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. Because that's the facts, Jack. That's what is. Those are the facts, and you cannot break that reality. You can only break yourself and entice others to break themselves on that reality. The ship that foolishly puts itself in a position to be driven by the wind and the waves onto the rocky shore does not break the rocks. The rocks break the ship. And God is a rock. You cannot really break his spiritual laws. You cannot really break his moral laws. Oh, you can flout them. You can disobey them. And if you do so, you are simply and unavoidably breaking yourself on his laws. And at some point in the process, you can put yourself beyond all help and all hope of rescue. Now, I don't want to go through each of these seven ones this morning. I'm going to save that for next week. Instead, I want to look briefly at this unity. What is the unity and what is it not? Well, let's, let's, let's eliminate a few things that it's not, first of all. First of all, it is not uniformity. We are not being told to look the same, act the same, dress the same, think the same. That's not what God's after. Nor is it doctrinal unity in the sense that we are all in in agreement about important details of doctrine, though it does require us to believe certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have to agree with those things. So in other words, if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord and God, for instance, that will put you outside of the possibility of unity. Unity is not possible with you. Even though I might like you and I might want to do good to you, unity is not possible because you're not in Christ by virtue of what you think about Christ. And so, for instance, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses or mainline liberal theologians who don't believe in the divinity of Christ as it's defined in the great creeds, they're not candidates for unity with the people of God. Neither is it possible to have this unity with an unconverted person who hasn't been born again, even if they profess to believe all the right doctrines. Well, what is this unity then? And this is, I think, the coolest part. 
I love this. The more I think about this, the more I love this. I've just been kind of grooving in Trinitarian theology this week. At a fundamental level, what is the unity? Well, it is a humble, joyous submission of our wills to God, and then in God and through God, a humble, joyous submission of our wills to each other. So we submit to God, and then God says, now, I want you to submit to these people here. And when this is done correctly, God gets to be the the safety valve. God is the one who keeps our submission from harming ourselves or from harming others, because sometimes the worst thing that can happen to another person is for them to get their own way, and we don't want to be part of someone harming themselves by helping them to get their own way when what they want is wrong or destructive. But so God, God is the one who says, okay, I'm going to keep this on the rails. But, but he said, and I can, I can remember like, just, I don't know what it is about the dishes. The dishes are highly symbolic to me. I hate the dishes. And yet I'm obsessed with the dishes. I'm the only one that cleans the dishes properly in my house. Although Jordan does a pretty good second place. I love you, honey. You're good. You're awesome. She cleans the stove way better than me. But, but I can remember um, a time in, in my life where like, the dishes were a, a real bone of contention in my marriage. And, and I didn't want to do them. Because I I you know, we had set life up a certain way, and I didn't think I should have to do them. And God said, do you love me? And I said, yes. He said, will you submit to me? And I said, maybe, depends on what you want. And he said, then do the dishes for your wife. Just take that on as your thing. And I was like, no. And he's like, do you love me? Yes. Will you obey me? Yes. Then do this for me and submit to her on this. Man, that was hard, right? But it was only hard because I'm a selfish jerk. It was, there's nothing hard about the, I mean, you know, if we lived in the 1890s with no running water, maybe the dishes would be hard, but we don't, you know? I mean, I rinse them off, I put them in the machine that washes them for me, then I put them away. You know, it's not that big a deal. But it was just highly symbolic in my mind. And to this day, if I'm going to have a, 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 I'm going to start grumbling in my heart, it'll be at the kitchen sink with a sink full of dishes, I guarantee you. So I still haven't worked all the way through that. But what Jesus is saying is, by submitting to me, you're, I'm going to tell you to submit to someone else. And then I'm going to be the one who says, okay, it's time to stop if it's becoming unhealthy, or keep going, you're not broken of yourself enough yet. So God gets to be the safety valve, and we submit to one another, and that is the substance of our unity. Okay? Now, where do I get all this from? Well, uh, all of this is in the nature and character of God himself, isn't it? Because that's what that little bit of the high priestly prayer that uh, was read for us this morning is the call to worship. That's what it teaches, doesn't it? Jesus is praying to the Father in this high priestly prayer, and he's praying for not only his disciples that are there in the room, but for all of those who will believe because of their witness. So he's praying for all of us. He's praying for all of his people all throughout time and history, all throughout the world. And and he prays, he says, I want them to be one, Father, as you and I are one. I want them to be one as you and I are one. Now, 
It's very easy to get deep in the weeds when we're dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity because it's not an easy subject. But there are some things that we can and should learn and know, okay? There is one God, but there are three persons in the one God, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So one God, three persons. You remember, holy, holy, holy God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I know I screwed that up, Timothy, sorry. But um, that's what the old hymn says. Thank you. Now, it's in the nature of a person to have his or her own will. And so each of these three persons in the Trinity has their own individual and distinct will. And the Bible clearly teaches that in multiple places. But just to prove it to you, let's open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. I just, the more I think about this, the more just jazzed I get about this. The Gospel of John, and John chapter 6, and in verse 38, John 6 and verse 38, this is just one of the places, we're going to go through a few of them. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So there's my will, and then there's the will of him who sent me, and I came here not to do what I, in my will, want done, but I have submitted my will to the will of him who sent me. Turn back a chapter to John chapter 5 and verse 30, and you'll see something quite similar. Once again, Jesus is speaking, and he says, I can do nothing on my own. Now think about that for a minute. The second person of the Trinity who, cre- who is the agent of the created word and sustains all things in their existence by the word of his power says, I can do nothing on my own. I've put myself in a position right now where I do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So once again, Jesus says, I have a will, and the Father has a will, and my will is distinct from his will somehow. And I didn't come to do what I wanted. I came to do what he wanted. Go back yet another chapter to John chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we could also look at John 12, 49 and 50, and at John 14 and verse 31. And Jesus is clearly saying here, I have a will. It is in some way distinct or different from the Father's will. And I didn't come to do my will. I came to do his will. And then we see this really, really, really clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? Luke chapter 22 verses 39 through 42. And as he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, this is John, or Luke 22, verses 39. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
So there's a, actually a theological error called monothelitism. Mono means one, thelos means will, and it's the, the, the theological error is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit only have one will. They don't. They have three wills. Now I want you to realize what this means, loved ones. Sinless Jesus, our paragon and example, died to self in the exact same way that he asks you to die to self, even though he was without sin. He denied himself. He took up his cross, and he followed the will of the Father all the way to Golgotha and was nailed to that cross to save us. This is why it is fitting that you and I deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow the Lord Jesus wherever he would lead us. This is why it's fitting that we die to self and that we submit to one another. Think about what Jesus did in this respect. He laid aside his dignity and he took up a basin and a towel and he washed the feet of his disciples, which was the grossest job of all the gross jobs in the whole household. He ministered to the needs of his people as an example. He said, after he puts, his, puts the basin away and puts his clothes back on and resumes his rightful place at the head of the table, he says, do you understand what I have done for you? In the world, people lord it over each other. They love telling each other what to do. And when they tell each other what to do, it's not for some common goal usually. It's not for everybody else's well-being. It's, it's so that one person gets to be the big shot and to be arrogant and proud and lord it over everybody else and make them feel small and stupid and weak. And he's just said, I'm showing you a different way. I'm showing you the way of the kingdom of God. I'm showing you the nature of the triune God when I do this. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the same. Jesus talks about him in, in John chapter 16, and this is just one place, John chapter 16 and verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. He has an authority. He's the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. He has all the authority of all authorities. But he says, I'm not going to come and speak on my own authority. What does he say? He doesn't come to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And in John chapter 15 and verse 26, Jesus says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and testifies about the Son. Well, what about the Father? I mean, he sounds like the big shot here, right? Is the Father sitting in his armchair in a stained t-shirt, drinking beer and telling everybody else what to do? Is that how the things are run in the heavenly places? Not at all. The Father delights to glorify the Son, and he will give him a kingdom and exalt his name above every other name, perhaps even the Father's own name. Now, all of this is a wonder. There was a conference that was held almost exactly nine years ago, and I just want to read you just a portion of one of the speaker's words. 
this man writes and says, Dale Bruner wrote a wonderful book called The Holy Spirit, the shy member of the Trinity. Of the Spirit, he said, one of the most surprising discoveries in my own study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only call the shyness of the Holy Spirit. What I mean here is not the shyness of timidity. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.7 calls him the spirit of power. It's not the spirit of timidity, but the spirit of difference, a spirit of concentrated attention on another. It is not the shyness with which we often experience of self-centeredness, but the shyness of other-centeredness. In other words, the shyness of love. The shyness of love. There are a number of texts in the New Testament that speak about the dimension of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That's John 14, 26. In other words, the Spirit will remind people about Jesus. Jesus also says, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears and will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. That's John 16, 13. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not clamor to have attention focused on himself. His constant ministry is to get people to focus on Jesus. Bruner is saying the mystery of the Holy Spirit can be kind of pictured like an illustration where he stands and he points to another, saying, listen to him, look at him, pay attention to him, love him, follow him. Bruner says that the Holy Spirit constantly points to and gives glory to Jesus. But he said, it's often been said that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity, the great neglected person of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit's desire and work is that we be overcome again, thrilled again, excited and gripped again by the wonder, the majesty, the relevance of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not mind being the Cinderella outside of the ballroom if the prince is honored in his kingdom. When we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus didn't walk around saying, I'm the greatest. He said things like, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve. He submitted to the Holy Spirit. All the synoptic gospels talk about Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark, who was probably the first among the synoptic writers, said that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness like he would drive a small child. Matthew and Luke most likely did not include that because they wanted to keep Jesus' independence before us. Jesus submits only to the Father. As he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus has this same shyness. And then there's the Father. Twice in the synoptic gospels, we hear the voice of the Father, once at Jesus' baptism, once at his transfiguration. Both times the Father said, in effect, this is my priceless son. I am so pleased with him. Listen to him, pay attention to him, love him, follow him. It is worth noticing that the voice from heaven does not say, listen to me too after listening to him, and don't forget I'm here too, I'm the Father, remember me, don't get too taken up with my son. God the Father is shy too. The whole blessed Trinity is shy. Each member of the Trinity points faithfully and selflessly to the other in a gracious, eternal circle of love. 
I remember at a Christian camp conference speaker a long time ago saying that we're not supposed to be proud, that God hates pride in people, that God is proud and that's okay because he's God and he has the right to be proud. But that's just one more case of us making God over in our own image. The reality of the Trinity is at the core of existence. At the core of reality are not protons, neutrons, or quarks. At the core of reality is this circle. It's the circle of Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son submits to the Father. The Father loves to glorify the Son, and the Son is driven by the Spirit. And the Spirit reminds everyone of the Son, and the Father also sends the Spirit. And there is an endless, eternal, humble, gentle, all the words that Paul wrote way back in Ephesians, community. That's the Trinity with one another. That's what's real. That's the most real thing in existence. Out of this richness, God creates human beings in his image. After the fall, the son comes to earth and he prayed for his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Of course, that's us. And then he speaks these amazing words. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Isn't that just unbelievable? And that's not all. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. The advantage of believing in the Trinity is not that we get an A from God for knowing the right answer. The advantage of believing in the Trinity is that we live as if the Trinity is real, as if the cosmos all around us is actually beyond all else a community of unspeakably magnificent personal beings of boundless love, knowledge, and power. Think about what Jesus said. Father, I want them to be one so that the world will know that you sent me. In other words, the reason Paul says, make it as important as breathing to keep the unity, to maintain this unity that actually exists, is because on this the realization of the world that Jesus is who he said he is and is sent by the Father to do what he was supposed to do hangs on us doing that. It hangs on us doing that. It, 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 he doesn't say the world will know if, if they're really cool and, and socially influential. He doesn't say the world will know that, that you sent me if they're really rich and have comfortable lives of health and wealth and perfect teeth and nice tans. It doesn't say that the world will know if we're um, very aggressive in our programs and evangelism and things like that. No, it says the world will know by how they treat each other. The world will know by how they treat each other that you sent me. Because as the ancients said in astonishment when they looked at the early Christians, the ancients said, behold how they love one another. They die for one another. They don't think a thing about it. Something real 
is going on there. Father, may it be that something real would be going on here as well. In your name we pray. Amen.